to a special edition of the Darden Admissions Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Twitty, and you are listening to a new episode. On this episode of the podcast, we continue our ongoing spotlight on learning through the case method here at the Darden School of Business with a conversation with three members of the Darden faculty, Professor Robert Carraway, Professor Lynn Isabella, and Professor Mark Lipson. In this conversation, Robert, Lynn, and Mark discuss how they prepare for class. They offer insights about student-centered learning here at the Darden School. They reflect upon what they enjoy about teaching and so much more. If you are interested in learning more about the academic experience here at Darden, this conversation is highly recommended. So without further ado, here's my interview with three members of the Darden faculty, Professor Robert Carraway, Professor Lynn Isabella, and Professor Mark Lipson. Robert, Lynn, Mark, welcome to the podcast. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to have you here. Um, Robert, how are you doing? How's everything? Uh, things are going great. Things yeah. are going great. It's springtime in Charlottesville. What could be nicer than that? And uh, the cherry blossoms, I guess, are uh, are in full bloom. Maybe they're getting toward the end of their time. So, you know, everything's nice. Lynn, how about you? How are things? Things are good. I was just up at SFG finishing up uh, LO2 for quarter four. And I think given the 60 mile an hour winds that DC had, on Saturday night, whatever blossoms were on the cherry trees are now on the ground. Yeah, that's right. High wind advisory for this weekend in, in D.C. And yet there was still, I believe, a, a road race that happened. Some runners out there. I can't imagine what that was like, but um, it is the season for that sort of thing. Uh, Mark, how about you? How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. I am, as you know, at Cambridge, U.K. Um, on a sabbatical working with some colleagues here at the Judge Business School. Um, but uh, very much keeping in touch with all the great things that are happening at Darden and in Charlottesville. Thank you so much for for calling in um, for for this as well, and thank you all for doing doing this conversation. This is part of an ongoing series that we've been hosting here on the podcast about the learning experience here at Darden. Many prospective students have questions about the case method, what happens in a Darden classroom, how people prepare for these conversations, and I can think of no three people better equipped to to have this conversation. So thank you uh, for coming on the podcast. But before we get there, uh, I just want to start with a little bit of of your stories uh, and your background. So Lynn, can I come to you first? Uh, Tell us more about you. How did did you get to Darden? I got to Darden in 1990. So that would be some 33 years ago. And I had just finished uh, six years at my first academic appointment at Southern Methodist University in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I was looking for a place that would allow me to have my feet in two worlds, the world of scholarship and the world of the practicing manager. And Darden was that place. And I had the opportunity first to visit. And then within six months, that turned into a full-time appointment. And I've been here ever since. You mentioned uh, leading organizations, uh, teaching LO2, uh, as it's known, uh, to our executive MBA students. How did you get interested in in leadership and leading organizations um, as a topic, as a discipline? As a discipline, well, I... uh... (laughs) I have to laugh because it's a it's a it's a long time ago, but I knew that my future was in academics. I just didn't know in what. Um, and it took me several years to figure out the area of focus that I wanted to have. But it was actually 
an internship on Apollo 11 at MIT. I was a math major in college that demonstrated to me that my real interest was people. I had also minored in psychology uh, at university. So it was more a question of what, how do I want to express that? And uh, in my research, I uncovered this field called organizational behavior in the mid 70s. It was just starting off as a field and uh, that set me on my course of action. I don't think I knew uh, that you were an intern MIT on Apollo 11. That is really, it's really I was. Cool. It was a summer job. I decided at that time that my future was not in computers, that it was with people. So did I make the right decision? I think I did. All right. We certainly think you did. All right, Mark, I'm gonna come to you with the, with the same question. Tell us a little bit more about you and, and how did you get to Darden? Yeah, well, um, one thing to keep in mind is I am a, a double who. Um, I have my undergraduate degree and a master's degree and they together reflect um, a sort of uh, bizarrely idiosyncratic nature of my life, which is my undergraduate degree is anthropology. So I very much consider myself a poet and someone with a big interest in uh, essentially human beings and decision making. Um, but I got a master's in accounting later and uh, worked as a public accountant for a bit before moving into academia. So as far as getting back to Darden, um, I always wanted to come to Darden eventually. Um, it was just about a 20-year journey of getting the PhD, working at another school, getting tenure before the, the perfect opportunity arose. And uh, here I am back and loving every minute of it. Um, I'll, I'll echo Lynn's uh, thought about um, the beautiful nature of Darden is that ability to do many things. Um, and for me, it was a great opportunity to advance my research and to be at a place that valued the teaching that I view as so important, um, both personally and as far as the impact on students. And you're a member of the finance faculty. Um, what attracted you to finance? Well, you know, uh, that strange combination of anthropology and accounting, which seem like two different sides of the world, I think that finance sort of sits in the middle <laughs> because accounting is, is just marvelous. And I actually do love the way it organizes information in a way that helps us make decisions. But it's the actual making of decisions that always interested me. And that's kind of finance is, is sort of how we think about reasons to make decisions. And so got, got a little bit of both, how people um, organize information and how people make decisions. Excellent. Robert, how about you? Tell us more about you and, and how you got to Darden. Sure. Well, um, like Lynn, I, I was, uh, I had a math background, but I, I learned pretty early on I was not going to be a mathematician. Um, went to get an MBA and just fell in love with the application of analytics to actual business uh, issues. When I graduated, uh, when I got my PhD, I was not planning to go into academia at all. I wanted to go into the real world and act, actually fly the craft a bit. Um, and I actually came and interviewed at Darden out of a courtesy to a former professor of mine who said they have an opening in their quantitative analysis area. Why don't you at least come and talk to them? Um, and I had talked to a couple of other schools at that point. Uh, I came and at the end of my first day visiting here, I called my wife and said, this is where I want to be. This is perfect for me. And the two things that really struck me was, first of all, 
uh, the fact that I thought I would actually be as I would be clo as close, if not closer, to practicing management at Darden as if I was in the real world and had to deal with all the politics and stuff out there. So I loved that. And the second thing, the couple of other academic institutions I talked to, the message I got from them was that any minute outside the classroom I spent thinking about teaching was a waste of my time. I had to be doing research. And I knew I wouldn't be happy in a situation like that because I, the classroom wouldn't be what I would aspire it to be. So uh, to find a place that actually valued taking time and really trying to create powerful educational experiences for students, that was just very exciting to me. And what was exciting to you about uh, quantitative analysis area using analytics uh, to make decisions? You know, um, people often, well, I, I'm, I'm segueing, I, I don't mean to segue too much into case method, but um, people always think of the quantitative stuff, statistics, well, you know, that stuff you just got to learn, that's just kind of rote. Uh, one of the things that struck me on that first day that I visited Darden was I sat in on a class by a now retired colleague of mine, and I sat in the back and I watched him, the best word I can think of is orchestrate this conversation, but for the students, he wasn't orchestrating, they were orchestrating the conversation, and he was just gently guiding them, and I'm sitting there, in fact, students said things that were wrong from a quantitative point of view. And I'm sitting in the back thinking desperately, he's got to step in and tell them they're wrong. But instead, he just let the conversation unfold. So what I saw was a completely different way of approaching quantitative analysis in a way that it was accessible to people, even those people without a quantitative background. They could really engage in the actual business problem, and then they could see how the analytical side could actually help them in their decision making. So. That's kind of where the quantitative stuff kind of meshed together uh, with the business stuff for me. I think that's a good uh, entry point to talking about what it, the case method is all, all about. Um, prospective students here, that's word case method, they're curious, um, but they don't always know exactly what it means. So Mark, how do you explain uh, the case method to people who are new to this learning approach? Well, Robert just emphasized one thing that I that I, that I essentially always start with that uh, to say case case method is a little bit missing the point. What we do is student centered learning, and cases just happen to be a magnificent way to do many things at once through student centered learning. But we do amazing work now with data sets, real world problems, consulting types of engagements, uh, design problems and challenges. So there are many ways in which Darden um, executes on this broad idea we might label case method that don't involve cases, but do involve, as, as Robert emphasized so nicely, um, getting students to take charge of the learning and to sort of chart their journey through. So uh, the usual things I emphasize is that, you know, to be really successful in a leader is not about skills per se in a technical sense, but it's about collaboration, influence, exploration. Um, and that is what's so great about student-centered learning is you essentially create an environment where collaboration, influence, and exploration are the way you learn. So um, you work with others to address problems. You have to convince others of your solution or suggestion. Um, and together, you come up with new, new ideas and new insights. 
Um, the other thing that's that's critical to me, and again, Robert emphasized it, is you need space for people to be wrong. And this is part of the learning process. So we think, uh, I, I always emphasize that being right isn't enough. You have to bring people along on your journey so they can be inspired along with you. But at the same time, you have to be open to learning and being wrong and getting feedback, which is a, a great challenge for many of us. Um, and so that is a, so those two skills in many ways are, are very much the heart of a, of a classroom when you do it right. Students talk, students suggest, students respond, students let the errors come up, students find the errors and correct them. And the next thing you know, everyone has learned something quite tremendous. Robert, what do you highlight about this student-centered learning approach? Wow, I, I, it's hard to, I mean, I think Mark nailed it as far as I'm concerned. It, it is, um, you know, you, what, you, what is it, teach someone, give someone a fish and you, whatever that saying is, teach them how to fish, et cetera. I think that we're trying to teach people how to fish. We're, we're trying to teach them how not only to understand the current world and, and what are the current tools and techniques available, but be prepared when the new tools and techniques come along. So, you know, in my world, chat GPT has now landed on our doorstep. What does that mean? Uh, whatever coding language you're using today is gonna to be different tomorrow. And if you haven't developed that ability to begin to think for yourself and actually to have the confidence that you can think for yourself. Uh, and uh, I, I just, I think that is what the case method really helps develop in people so that, you know, the learning, Darden is the beginning of your learning journey, and it's just going to continue for the rest of your life. But hopefully we've laid the foundation that you, you can move forward with that. So, um, you know, I, I and I, the other thing I, I would maybe add to what Mark said is, you know, I think we have a philosophy of Darden that business, and this maybe segues to Lynn, business is, uh, Business is fundamentally a social phenomenon. No matter how many numbers we've got at the end of the day, it's about people. It's about working with people, whether they're customers, bosses, employees, whatever. It's, it's learning to work with people. And I think part of the secret sauce of what we do in, as Mark said, the student-centered learning is you learn by exercising exactly those same social skills that are going to really determine your future success. So. That, that's why we teach the way we do. And someone from also, I, I find myself again, both poet and quant. Um, I was trained as a theorist. So my, my uh, training uh, in my PhD was corporate financial theory. Uh, and so I always sort of emphasize a rather unique thing, which is I'm definitely teaching theory. And, and this is Robert's point that I'm not teaching you today's recipe or today's facts. I'm teaching you how to think rigorously about what you do. And that's, that is what's so beautiful. But I like to add a little emphasis is that like, I'm not trying to teach you my theory. I'm trying to let you build your own theory and understanding of the world. And in that sense, it's deeply personal and deeply unique to you. We're not teaching you to be a standard cookie cutter MBA. We're trying to teach you to be the very best um, business leader you could be. And you really need to... Uh, sort of be true to your own values, be true to your own instincts, but you have to do that in a rigorous theory grounded fashion. But again, I let that theory be your theory 
Um, I just help you sharpen it. Lynn, what would you want to add uh, I, here? I would want to add that at its best, case method is everything that my colleagues Robert and Mark have said. Uh, it, it's exciting to be in that classroom. It's energizing to be in that classroom. If you're not familiar with it, it can be incredibly frustrating as a student because you may have come from an academic environment where the answers were presented to you or the 10 steps to do a calculation or to uh, apply to a certain situation uh, were in, in the book or you read about it or the instructor handed it to you. And that's not what the case method is about. Uh, it's about engaging in a dialogue with other people in the room around which you come to your own common understanding, guided by the faculty member who's going to make sure that in the end, we've cleaned up all the things that may not be uh, correct so that you don't walk out learning something incorrect. Uh, but that can be frustrating if you are ready for the answer and you walk out of a case discussion and you don't have that answer because you have to sit and reflect and figure out that, yeah, the answer was there. But one of the things that uh, I've heard from some of our students who go out for their first internships during the summer, some of our residential students, that they are shocked, pleasantly shocked at the amount that they have learned against some of the other interns from other schools. So the method works, even though at the end of a class, you can feel a little bit, what did I learn? Lynn said against some of the other, I would generally say against all of the other, but hey. <laughs> we'll accept partisan comments here on the, on the podcast. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So, Lynn, I want to I want to come back to something you just said because we had a mock class on Thursday night, and it was a class with Yael, and she was working through the case called High Places. Robert, you probably know this this case, a decision tree case where you're trying to figure out which movie should we make. And at the end of it, um, a couple of the students were like, "Well, you know, what's the answer here? And you know, what 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 would you do? This kind of thing." And I feel like that's a really profound moment. Prospective students will oftentimes ask that. And the answer is not not forthcoming. Um, you know that's that's not how this works. Uh, what would you say to to a student who asked who asked that question? Oh, I get asked all the time. Well, what would you do in this situation? You know, because it's a management situation, it's a leadership decision situation. I said that's uh, that's not relevant here. What's relevant is what would you. What did you take away? And I turn the question back on the person who asked it, which of course increases the level of their frustration, but also demonstrates the fact that if I answer the question, it is taken as the right answer. And it doesn't matter what I would do if I were in that situation with my value system and my approach, what matters is what they would do given who they are and what they wanted to accomplish in the decision that they're about to take. Yeah, I think Lynn is, is onto a really important thing, which is to link, and you've done it better than, I, than I've done it, and I'm, I'm going to really take this forward, 
to link the decision to the person making the decision to say, to say, look, in the end, this is your decision that has to be true to, and you put it well, your values and your aspirations and so forth. And therefore my answer is irrelevant. And, and then you can just turn it back and say, you know, that's the purpose of this classroom is to make you better at being true to your thoughts and values and just make you more effective at it. Mm. One of the things that I, I've often said maybe not directly in a classroom, but in smaller groups is I teach people not stuff. And uh, because, because of the nature of the material that I tackle, leadership, change, team building, it's all contingent on the individual and what's going to work for Robert or what's going to work for you, Mark, may not work for me and the other way around. So it's how do you take this smorgasbord of ideas, pick and choose from them and craft those into the leadership statement that you would like to make, at least in the kinds of things that uh, that I wrestle with in the classroom. Yeah, you can even extend this if we talk a little bit about teaching in the classroom to the faculty that a student would see. We're not all the same in any way, shape, or form, but we all believe in student-centered learning. We all teach extraordinarily effectively. We all have our hearts in the same place, but we teach very differently. We teach each of us in a way that's true to the kind of person we are, and we get by on certain skills and approaches. And I think this is essentially modeling for them their lives. They will all be achieving the same excellent outcomes and great leadership, but we'll do it each and every one of them their own unique way. You know, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I think another hidden learning in the, the diversity of our faculty and the range of styles that we use to still uh, achieve the objective of student-centered learning is that they get an incredible opportunity to learn how to manage a variety of bosses. And they don't, I don't think that is enough embraced as a learning experience because sometimes students express like or dislike for certain kinds of styles or learning experience. But when you're out there in, in an organizational environment, they're going to have to deal with probably every kind of character that stands in front of the room and orchestrates their class for them. So it's an incredible sub-learning experience. Uh, if they embrace the challenge. If I could jump in and, and just return briefly this idea of the right answer, because I think most people will acknowledge in leadership, there's maybe not a right answer, but in statistics, they believe there is a right answer. And they say, we just want to know what the right answer is. Um, I, I often, I, I recall years ago teaching a student who made the absolute lowest passing grade you can make in their required uh, decision analysis course. Barely squeaked by, no math background at all. Um, and I remember um, she went to her summer internship with the consumer packaged goods firm, and there were interns from top schools, including the very quantitatively oriented schools. And uh, at the opening picnic we have for the second year, she saw me and just started shaking her head. And she said, Haraway, you will not believe this. I, I was the quantitative statistics expert. Said, these folks, they knew every formula. They could recite it forward and backward, but 
when presented with a real challenge, with a real project, a real situation, they would all end up in my office trying to, to let me help them think through how to bring to bear all of these little details they had. And, and I think that is why we say in this, you know, in this world, even of statistics, once you're dealing with business situations, there's just there's not a right answer. There are probably right questions that you should be asking. And it's developing the judgment to look at a situation and recognize, oh, here is where regression might be something that would be really valuable and useful to me. Yeah, in my classes, I, I emphasize repeatedly, it's a common theme that the ultimate objective of analysis is insight, not accuracy. And as soon as you get it, it's like, no, I'm not trying to get a right number or anything. I'm trying to learn about the, the environment in which I have to make a decision. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you prepare for these classes. I know oftentimes you're, you may be teaching cases that you taught um, for a number of years. You may be teaching brand new cases. You may be uh, working from different material, um, as, as Mark noted, as we started this conversation. So Robert, how do you prepare uh, for a case discussion? What does that look like from the faculty side? Um, well, you know, uh, interesting. There are cases I've taught many, many times over and over. And, and the beauty of that, the beauty of teaching the case method is the 40th time I teach a case to a group, I may hear something I've never heard before. So how do I prepare for that? I, I really want to understand the case forward and backwards from my standpoint, because when I'm in the classroom, I really want to be able to listen to what people say. I don't want to have to spend time myself trying to think through, oh, what do I think? I, I want to know the case. <clears throat> I want to listen to them because I really want to have a conversation with them. I don't I don't want to be forcing them to try to guess what I want to hear. I really want to make sure they know I'm listening to what they have to say. And the way that happens is I have to be very familiar uh, with the case myself. Now, that having been said, there is, there is little more exciting than teaching a new case, one that I've never taught before. Because no matter how much I know and how, how much I understand the situation, it is a whole new world to hear what they see in the situation. Um, and so, you know, that for me is the preparation. I, I will tell you that, you know, to the point that Lynn made, that, you know, we do want to make sure they get at the end of class. We want to make sure that that they haven't been, you know, misled in some way. We want to make sure that some of the main messages do come out in the course of the conversation. What may not be clear at the end of them, it, it may not be clear at the end of the class with certainty what those what those big points are, but it will as we do class after class after class, the whole design of our courses is gradually, those things will become very clear to them. And it will become clear to them in a way that is much, I, I guess the word I think of we use is stickier. It's stickier because they've had to wrestle with it. It wasn't something they had in a set of notes that simply said, oh, here's the major point. It's something that over time they began to develop and recognize is a major point. And to Mark's earlier point, it's something they own. They don't own it because I told them that that was a main point. They own it because they saw that that was a main point and a main takeaway for them. So again, it's being preparation for me is being very familiar with the case, listening, knowing the right questions to ask. 
based on what the uh, it is that they say, what I hear them say, at least for those cases I've taught a lot. Lynn, how about you? Um, I, I always see you around Sands Family Grounds, Executive MBA residency, you're off, you know, looking through, I, you got all kinds of things there, uh, preparing for the next class. So I'm curious, how do you get ready? Yeah, I go, I go into a kind of huddle mode before a class. Obviously, I've read the case, I'm familiar with it. If it's a case that I have prepared myself, I know a lot of additional information that may not be in the case, but that can swirl around. But mostly, I think, what's the conversation I want to have? And uh, how can I take the students on a journey to have that conversation, given where they are? And that has to take into consideration the class that we'd had before, where we are, are in our journey. Sometimes it has to do with, is this the first case in the morning? Is this the last case in the afternoon? You know, are they before lunch? Are they after lunch? But once I decide what the conversation is that I want to have and what are the just a couple of key points that I hope that we will talk about, then I think about what are the questions that I can ask that will prompt us toward that discussion. Some people will lay out the questions in a certain order. I do that. I think about how much time I'm gonna spend on each question and then I walk in the room and basically I let it go. Sometimes I can follow that script. Sometimes something that a student says at the beginning of the class says, oh, we're going to go to question number three now. Um, and so I try to let them have the conversation that they want to have. So it's, it's a lot of dancing up there uh, without your feet moving because my mind is going all the time about where is this going? How do I get it to the next thing? And sometimes it's just a question of a student says something and it provides that natural segue to the next topic. And when I do a case that I'm very familiar with, I actually have to try and forget what past experiences have been like, because this is a new group who's reading it for the first time. It's interesting as you were talking, Lynn, uh, it reminds there's an Abraham Lincoln quote that I love where he says, um, when I'm about to reason with someone, I spend a third of the time thinking about what I'm going to say and two thirds of my time thinking about what they're going to say. Mm. And I think that for me, that's prep is spending a lot of time thinking about what they might say and therefore what I might do to help advance the conversation. Yeah, I think Robert, that's that's sort of the heart of what makes for a good plan and, and and Lynn's description of the conversation I want to have in a way as being the plan. Now I call it a teaching plan too, um, but it's really more of a teaching structure because as Lynn emphasized, you don't really know how you're gonna go and how the day's gonna go or what the order is going to be. But I'm a visual guy, so I have a a piece of paper where I have all three boards and I use that to orchestrate what I ex what I'm going to try to achieve. Um, never quite comes out that way, but but that's so for my preparation is is first to remind myself, as Lynn said, what is the conversation I want to have? Like, what's the structure? And if I'm good, every time I pull out a fresh sheet of paper and write a fresh structure and do all the analysis again, so I know what the students are living through. 
But I want to emphasize two things um, that didn't come up. The first is a lot of what we do at Darden is team taught, uh, particularly in the residential program. By that, I mean, we have five sections and every one of those sections will have the same kind of journey and conversation to the best approximation, um, despite the very large differences. So we meet as teaching teams and really iron out all those things. What are the things that students might do? What are the hiccups we might um, come into contact with? And then what is, what is the ultimate objective of every class? So that's one thing that's, that's worth knowing. The second thing is my preparation is about two thirds case and one third students. So I go back and review where are, where are, where are each of my students in class participation, what are the students I know who might be struggling on a particular topic I should be aware of, which students might have expertise that they could bring into the classroom. So there's a lot of actually getting ready for the students that I'm about to encounter and designing the class for them and, and essentially raising my awareness. Who are my five quietest students and when can I give them an opportunity to talk, for example, is, is kind of a first order question when I walk into a classroom. You know, that's very much what Lynn said earlier about, uh, I, what'd you say, Lynn? I don't teach stuff, I teach students. And it's really thinking about that. Yeah, that's one of the things that we actually share with respect to students, that the faculty know the people in the room. They, they spend some time with the students' backgrounds. They know who might have a particular background that could intersect with the topic with being discussed. That strikes me, um, is that part of all of your preparations? Something that you take note of, um, Robert? Is that something that, that you absolutely, Absolutely. It, it, it is, yeah. I mean, it, um, I know who I want to call that I haven't heard from. Um, I will, uh, you know, class contribute. We actually evaluate class contribution, and, and we, we do so because uh, we're looking for a couple of things. We're trying to test and make sure people are getting what it is, some of the points that are coming out in class. Um, but to, to just to make sure that, um, but we also are looking for that you're not just learning the stuff, but that you're perfecting your ability to interact and work with others at the same time. Uh, and, and that's something that, you know, it's almost like the class itself is the, is the play, but there's stuff before the play and there's stuff after the play. And there are conversations I have with students in both of those uh, times. Um, when I go back right after class and try to evaluate class contribution, who said some really valuable things, I'll actually send emails to students at that point. Uh, and I'll say, you made a really good point here. I'll say, you know what, when you said this, I think some people were lost. I, I mean, I will try to give feedback instantly that helps them understand above and beyond the stuff, how was your engagement? How was the process that you were? Uh, and, you know, as Mark, you were saying, if students have been quiet, it's not just a matter of calling on them in class, it's reaching out to them outside of class and saying, I'm concerned. Uh, you know, if, if we don't let people passively sit in our courses, you know, we, we want you to be engaged. And if you're not, we want to we want to reach out and, and try to help you get more engaged and involved because we know that's the key to this being the most valuable experience it can be for you. Earlier, Lynn made some comments were very good about how it can be very big challenge for students when there's no answer. You know, this is what they're used to. Suddenly it's different. And 
There are many things about the Darden classroom that require you to bring sort of your heart and soul into the conversation as well as just thinking through material. And we have to be very aware of the anxiety that can happen um, and all these things. So again, part of prep for us is anticipating the emotional journey students are having both you know, at their time at Darden and in the time in our subject matter and in during even the, the span of a case. And I think that that's, that holistic view mirrors the holistic teaching that we're doing. I wanna just jump back to uh, Brett, to your question about knowing the students' backgrounds. Um, this is, for me, concentrating only in the executive MBA program, really important because these folks are all working professionals as our part-time MBA students are as well. And they are a joy to teach because they carry back whatever glimmer of learnings they have. And on a Monday morning, I can get an email that says, wow, I just used something that you that you talked about. But part of the reason why uh, they stay working and come to an EMBA program or a part-time program is the ability to network with lots of other students. So where they work at the time, where they're currently employed becomes a natural part of the conversation that we have. Um, and so I did a case yesterday on Google, some new material about the controversy over the Google CEO style. And there was somebody in the room who worked for Google and I didn't even have to call on that person when another student said, well, I think we need to hear from, you know, who works there. So uh, there are many ways to, to bring actively the student's background into the conversation. If it's a financial services case, who's in financial services? Who knows what it's like in an investment bank um, as an example? So uh, I think that's a benefit that we get in the EMBA program and in the part-time program that my colleagues in the residential program don't have the opportunity to take full advantage of because uh, these folks are at another point in their career where they're burrowing in um, on the knowledge side before they then go back out. Um, into the world of work. One of the things you've all touched on is this journey that students are on with class contribution, participating in a class. I want, I want to talk about that here, just given the audience for this conversation, because my sense is that this is something, knowing that students are evaluated on this as a portion of their grade, something that students feel kind of challenged by, they're nervous about, maybe a little bit anxious about, uh, Mark. Um, and so, uh, as, you, as you mentioned, Mark, I want to come to you first. Um, how do you help students understand what it means uh, to contribute in class, to add to that com conversation? That's a, that's a great thing to highlight. Um, a couple things that I, I always make sure um, uh, messaging to the to the class is that the whole class is on their side. Like it's not you on your own. Oh my God, I'm going to make a mistake. It's you're a part of a broad class that all wants to get together and learn. So it's a sort of shared responsibility in the class to make sure everyone's comfortable and everyone uh, 
feels that what they're doing is valuable. So I think the first thing is, this is not you against the class, it's us together. And I think that really brings down some of the tension. The second thing is, is to emphasize repeatedly that we all come into this from a different place. So I, I teach, I, I designed and teach in our Darden Before Darden program, which is really for the 40 or 50% of our students who feel they need a little extra getting ready for some of the material. Um, and that's part of how Darden meets people where they are to make sure that when they get into the classroom, we've you know, leveled them up a little bit with a, a few things that they can feel comfortable with so that it's not quite so daunting. So I could go on and on and there's so many things we do, but, but I think that the takeaway the students should get listening to this is we know that this is there. We, we understand where they're coming from and we're very intentional about all the things we do to make it better. And many of those things are things they would never see on the surface, but, but are there. Robert, what would you want to highlight? As, as you taught students for, for a number of years here, I always feel like when I talk with executive MBA students in quarter one, for example, they're really kind of anxious to get in and raise and, and not quite sure exactly what participation means. Maybe quarter two, they have a little bit of a better sense quarter three. So how do you help students understand what it means to, to contribute to a class? I mean, I think it's an everyone's going to have an adjustment period initially. Uh, the biggest thing initially they think is that they've got to say something that's right. And, uh, you know, that, that's the hardest thing to get them to overcome. And, and, you know, part of it is they want to impress me that they know what they're talking about. But by far the bigger thing, I think Mark alluded to this, is they don't want to look bad in front of their peers sitting in the classroom. And so at some point early on, I have to establish that if you're going to be wrong, isn't this the best place to be wrong? Isn't it much better to be wrong here in the classroom than on the job when you're out there? Uh, and so uh, I will often role play in class being wrong. In fact, I think I have a little bit of a reputation for this, for you know, being the person who doesn't know. Uh, and I will help folks um, I, I mean, I'll join in with folks who are, are, are saying things that maybe aren't right. I'll join in and encourage and support them and try to help role play for them. You know, how, how do you really engage with people who maybe do know the, the, you know, the correct way of applying regression analysis? How do I help you pull from them what it is you need in order to, to, to own the part of it that you're capable uh, of owning. Uh, the other thing that I, I really try for, uh, since I have a lot of students um, that are, um, uh, let, let's say they're not confident of their quantitative skills in the classroom, and so they really want to just sit back uh, and listen, I, I really try to, to help them see that um, there's a certain amount of materials that we're gonna maybe cover in the course. But the goal is not for you to get all the material. The goal is for you to push the envelope and to get as much of it as you can. And in the classroom, we wanna make sure we're honoring that. We wanna make sure that, that that's a victory. You know, the small steps that you take is something that the entire class can actually celebrate. And I feel, really comfortable with that. You know, uh, I think earlier Lynn had talked about the frustration. One of the frustrations that that uh, can possibly happen in my classroom is that the folks 
who do understand the quantitative stuff, you know, you would think that they might get frustrated that why are we spending our time talking about this basic step when there's so much more we could be doing here. But the key is to help them realize that what they're developing is really far more critical and important for them. They're developing the ability to work with people who don't have their level of quantitative expertise. And in terms of their future career success, I'm, I'm, I'm in Lynn's camp now. I think that's far more important that you learn how to work with those people and you develop your skills. You know, I, I, will, I will tell them in classroom, I'll repeat it over and over. It's not about being the smartest person in the room. It's about being the most influential person in the room. How do you influence other people is you have to be able to talk and you have to be able to meet them where they are and help them make progress. So, you know, I, I think I would, it, it's on both ends of the spectrum. It's the people who are reluctant to talk because of their lack of quantitative background. And as for the people with the skills to recognize the value they can get if they can learn how to work with those folks. Uh, and I tell the, the students who are struggling, I'm sorry, I'm going on and on. I tell the ones who are struggling, when you ask a question that, because you don't understand something, you're actually helping those students who get it because you're helping them understand the, a, a whole group of people that they're gonna be encountering in their work lives. And you're helping them get better at figuring out how do I interact? How are they thinking about the world? Lynn, what do you share with students? I imagine you have all kinds of very interesting conversations in the LO class. Probably talk about some, some hot topics. We have very interesting conversations and oftentimes uh, students who might be reluctant to participate in a more quantitative class make up the difference in a class like mine where everyone has a view. Uh, one of the things that I worry about sometimes in class participation and I try to focus students away from is that it's not about getting points. It's not, and it's not about, okay, I made a comment. Now I don't have to pay any attention because I got that over with, you know, I scored my point. That if we're really in a classroom about case method student-centered learning, uh, particularly around the topics that uh, I teach, which are very personal and very genuine, everyone's voice needs to be a part of that. And you're actively listening, you're engaged, and you're not talking to score a point, but you're adding to the conversation because whatever is on your mind just has to get in there. So I would rather have students worry less about, did I talk in every class and focus more on, am I really bringing, to, bringing the class to the issues that I think are relevant or the comment that we've overlooked or do I need to really take a risk and challenge uh, what someone said, because I'm not sure I share that same opinion. It takes a lot of trust and it takes a certain amount of time together for a group to get ready to do some of those more participation advanced things uh, like like challenge or or summarize. 
but it's more than just raising your hand and, and answering a question that the professor asked and then putting your hand down and going, I'm done. Yeah, in our, in our mid-course feedback to students, uh, one of the things we, we emphasize it throughout, but it's, it's a great moment after you've been out a little bit, is that the ultimate audience for their comments are the other students. And the ultimate question of quality is the impact it has on the conversation and how people are learning. It's, so in some sense, it has nothing to do with them, but it has everything to do with the class. When, when students ask me sometimes, so how am I doing? You know, how, how are my comments? I'll tell them, why don't you ask your, your peers? Well, um, last question, I think, for you here. We covered so much ground. Um, so I want to just ask one, one question around sort of advice you would have for students who are coming to the learning experience here at Darden. Imagine this uh, will be listened to by some of our incoming students across all of our programs. So, uh, Robert, what would you share uh, for students who are coming to Darden, you know, a tip or two uh, for them. Um, I, I would uh, come prepared to be come to be engaged, come to participate fully, come to um, come to embrace a world where there's going to be a fire hydrant and stuff is going to be pouring out of that fire hydrant, and you know. You're, you want to just grab as much of it as you can. You're not going to get all of it, but you're going to get so much out of the experience. Come prepared for that kind of world. Um, you know, I, I think if, in fact, your idea of education is so ingrained in, I sit in the back of the room and take notes, there are a lot of programs out there that will enable you to do exactly that. And that that is simply not what we do here. We, we will engage you. We will require that you be engaged in the conversation and uh, come prepared to be open with that. Recognizing full well at times, I love, it's going to be frustrating at times. It's going to be overwhelming at times. But at the end of the day, it is, it is going to be worth it for the value that you've been able to add to yourself. And if that's the kind of world that you think you want to really be challenged in that way, then um, come along for the ride. We'd love to have you. I think uh, Robert's saying, marry for love, not for money. You know, come, come here because Darden is who Darden is, not because we're highly ranked or you're going to make a lot of money in your jobs. Yes. I will also add from, again, just the uh, executive MBA perspective uh, or the part-time pr perspective, so working professionals, uh, that they really talk to other students and get a realistic job preview of what the program is like. Uh, because when you are working full-time, you are in school full-time or part-time, you have family and other kinds of home activities. It's an incredible balancing act. And the program goes at what can seem like warp speed. And so really thinking about, is this the right time for me? What kind of supports do I have in place? What can I start to think about now that will help me? Because once you're in it, it is, you know, full throttle forward. And it, you know, and as uh, both Mark and Robert have alluded to, it's not, it, 
might not be the best program for every student. And that is not a commentary on the student, but we learn best when we're in an environment that's going to support our learning. And if you are, if you want an environment that's uh, collaborative, that's co-learning, that's uh, engaging, that wants to hear from you, then Darden is the place that you should be. Yeah, I like to emphasize in, in coming to Darden, um, just to always say we are fully aware uh, of the um, externalities that are associated with student-centered learning, the, the ambiguity, the lack of closure, the stress, the share, like we know it. And we have built all sorts of structures to help you. Um, that said, I think we, we've all emphasized, you know, just know what you're getting into. Um, we will ask a lot of you. What we promise you, and it's always a promise we, we keep, is that you will find it to be the most extraordinary and valuable learning experience you could possibly have. That's why that's why we're here, right? That's why I think all of it, we, that's why Darden was the place we wanted to be. Certainly why I wanted to be here. Robert, Lynn, Mark, thank you so much. I can think of no better way to end this podcast. So we'll just we'll just wrap it up right there. It was so much fun talking with you. Uh, thank you for participating in this conversation. It was delightful. Thank you. Thank you, Brett. All right. Thank you, Brett. It was it was very much worth zooming in from um, late afternoon here in England. So <laughs> thank you for doing this. And that was my interview with three members of the Darden faculty: Professor Robert Caraway. Professor Lynn Isabella, and Professor Mark Lipson. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Till next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.